Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash H-O-C radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides. But we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over king. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Welcome, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, House of Cards Radio. Uh... You want to know what poker heaven is? I'm going to tell you. I'm sitting here about to interview one of the, to me, in my mind, one of the greatest poker players alive today. Greg Raymer is going to be our guest for the entire show. Life does not get much better. I look forward to talking to him and having you all listen. Great moments in history. In 1 million BC, early man discovers fire, only to have it stolen by a rival clan member. What are we going to do? It's no use. Rod did a masterful job of f***ing us. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides. But we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at House of Cards Radio. 
www.twitterradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. You're listening to the House of Cards. I'm raising the ante. Anybody wants in, get in. Anybody wants out, get out. All right, I'll play. Join us online at houseofcardsradio.com. Are we going to play poker? So, the poker game has begun. Good evening, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, and you're listening to House of Cards here on 1510 The Zone. Uh, I want to just start by saying that a lot of folks watch a lot of poker on television, and you see a lot of these young guys who think they are really making it to the big leagues. Well, we are joined by maybe the biggest, in my view, the best player to come along into the World Series for a long time, somebody whose career I have followed since before he won the main event in 2004, Greg Raymer, Greg Fosselman Raymer. Greg, are you there on the line? Hey, Ashley, how you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and I appreciate you joining us. I have hey, my a pleasure. million questions, but why don't we just start by having you tell us what you've been doing lately? Because I've read you've had some success, you've played in a few tournaments, but that's not all you do. What have you been doing in the last year or so? Um, I've been doing a lot of teaching in the last year, actually. I've gotten involved with the World Series of Poker Academy, which is a company that runs poker camps, live poker camps. So they have people like me, you know, well-known poker professionals who uh, are the instructors. And then we also almost always have Joe Navarro camps, and he is a former FBI agent. Oh, he's the expert on tells, right? Exactly. He's the tells expert. He used to teach FBI agents how to determine if, uh, you know, someone they were interrogating was was being truthful or not. And. so he's then moved that uh, skill level, that skill set into the poker world, and he helps teach the poker players how to determine if the other guy's bluffing or not. Huh. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, if I'm a new player, relatively new player, which most players are, even if they think they're uh, they're really hot stuff, most of them are relatively inexperienced. The ones that are playing these days, that I see at least, they all seem to be under thirty years old, and they're all a lot younger than I am. How do you instruct somebody in a seminar on the basic skills that they need to be really competitive in the world of uh, high-level poker? What, what do you start with, and what do you try to teach them? Well, I mean, it's it's a you know probably not much different than people would expect. I mean, what the, where the the value comes in is you know who's talking to you and 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 the the you know competence of what they're saying. But we do you know a big chunk of the camp is seminar teaching. So the students are sitting out there, and the instructors will talk to them. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, almost anything, really, but it's all related to uh, No Limit Hold'em tournaments. So um, that's our standard camp. We also have things like the horse camp where we teach, you know, the mixed game. Um, well, we have advanced academies as well. But uh, the, the primary focus is No Limit Hold'em tournaments. I imagine that with a number of different instructors – you all have your particular expertises that you would tend to talk more about. Do you have some particular areas that you talk about, or do all of you talk about everything? Well, I, I like to think of myself as a generalist, mm-hmm. so I'll talk about any aspect of the game, and I'll talk about any game whatsoever. So uh, I always have thought my biggest strength as a, as a professional poker player is the fact that I play all the games, and I play all of them at least reasonably well. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when you find me in a cash game, it's almost always a mixed game as opposed to just like a no-limit hold'em game Uh, because typically, you know, even when I'm playing very high stakes, like 400, 800 mixed game, um, you know, you're sitting at a table with like six other guys. Right. And usually every single one of them is weak at at least one game. Right. And and I like to think that I'm at least, you know, if I'm at a seven-handed table like that, I'd like to think that I'm at least the third or fourth best player in every game. 
you may and not so be it, you may not be the best in one particular game, but you're at least very competent in all the games. Yeah, it's like in other words, I might be like the second, third, or fourth best player in every game in the mix, and that'll make a lot more money in the long run than being the best player at two of the games, you know, and sucking at the other three. Right, right. Well, let me ask you about that because you know I remember. Greg, when you were playing in the relatively high stakes, when we first started No and Pot Limit Hold'em at Foxwoods, you would be down there, and you were um, known as being a very good cash game player then. This was before your huge fame and success in the World Series in 2004 and then nearly repeating in 2005. And what I'm wondering is where do you play 400-800 now? Do you spend a lot of time in Las Vegas? I mean, I know you're living in North Carolina. Do you play a lot online? Where do you find these mixed games that you're in? Uh, well, I do play a lot on Poker Stars, and and so we'll have like two hundred, four hundred horse games, you know, that that, are, that play on Poker Stars. Right. Um, but to be honest, I don't play a lot of uh, cash games other than online. So I mean, when I'm in Vegas, like at the World Series, maybe you know if I get knocked out of the tournament that day early, so it's you know it's two o'clock, I'm out of the noon event. Maybe I'm looking at the five o'clock event and it's limit hold'em, which I I don't like at all. Mm-hmm. So rather than you know, hang around the Rio for three hours and play in the, the Limit Hold'em tournament, I'll go over to the Bellagio and I'll sign up for the, you know, 400-800 mix game or something of that sort. I see. You I know, see. we're actually, we also played a few sessions of No Limit uh, Single Draw Deuce to Seven this year. Are you one of the the pros that have gotten into uh, Badoogie at all and including that in the mix, or have you tried to stay away from that? No, 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 I like Badoogie. It's uh you know, basically, I find that, that that all those games, there's there's things people do that are just, you know, you can just look at it from a mathematical point of view and say this is wrong, uh-huh. like, this is a mistake that this person is making. In fact, the first time I started playing the big mix games in California and Vegas um, after I'd won the World Series, you know, that was two of the games I'd never really played before it was Badoogie and and Triple Draw Deuce to Seven Low Ball. Right. And uh, so I just, you know, kind of sat at home. There's no books on those on those two games. So I uh, just kind of sat at home, you know, and spent uh, quite a few hours kind of going over the math. You know, what's involved in this game? What can I figure out just by looking at the games from a logical and mathematical point of view? Right. And then I thought, well, you know, I expect to, to be a loser at these games at first, but I'll, I'll have to go learn them, you know, by experience because there was no other way to learn, really. Right. And, uh, as soon as I sat down at the table, the first time I played, I think I was playing like 100, 200 mix at the Commerce. And uh, the very first hand of Badoogie I play, I'm just like, wow, these guys are just making clear, fundamental errors. You know, it's like, in other words, no matter what their cards are, no matter what, you know, even semi-reasonable range of hands they assign to me and the other opponents, what they did is a mistake. Well, so I found myself as a profitable player right from the get-go. Well, this actually gets to a, an area that would be of interest to our more skilled poker players. How would you, since there are no books, and I, I find that the No Limit Hold'em games, for example, are getting tougher and tougher because there's so Very much written. So. In, right. So a lot of the, you know, we talk to a lot of different pros, and they say they try to find games that are not that much written about or that much played, like Badoogie or Triple Draw, uh, Low Ball. And what I'm wondering is, how do you, as somebody who's very facile with math and very experienced in poker, how do you break down a game that you really haven't played before, like Badoogie, to figure out what a, a good play would be or how your opponent mathematically is making a mistake that you can take advantage of? What do you do? I mean, and maybe it's so esoteric you can't explain it, but try to bring us at least a little bit into your mind and how you would take a game like Badoogie, which is a kind of variation, a four-card lowball game where you have to have four cards of four different suits to have a Badoogie. It's a little confusing, especially for somebody who's used to working in a universe of standard poker hands. How do you break it down and think about it so you can have an edge? Well, the first thing you do is you just start looking about, you know, what are the percentage chances, you know, know, the mathematics, what are the chances of various hands occurring and of making various hands as you're drawing. So the first thing you can do is just say, like, what are the chances of someone being dealt to pat the doogie? And, you know, the, the math behind that, um, if, you're, if you're a math person, you'll say it's, it's, it's ridiculously easy. If you're not a math person, this might sound odd. But what I would do is I would say, well, you know, you're going to get dealt four cards. The chances of making a badoogie, and a badoogie is four cards 
where every card is a different suit and none of the cards are paired. Right. So that's, you know, for anyone who doesn't know the game, that's what a Badoogie means. The game is called Badoogie, but when someone says, I have a Badoogie, they mean a four-card hand with no pair and, and all four suits represented. Right. So the first card dealt off the deck, it doesn't matter what it is. Right. Because you can make a Badoogie with that card. But now the second card has to be a different rank and a different suit than the first card. Right. So that's 12 different ranks, three different suits. There's 36 cards out of 51 that the second card has to be. If right. it's one of the other um, 15 cards, then you cannot make a Badoogie without drawing. Right. So then the math there is simple. You have 36 chances out of 51. Now, the next card has to be two different suits, 11 different ranks. That's 22 cards out of 50. So you multiply 36 over 51 times 22 over 50. Right. And then the final card, there's only 10 cards in the deck. Right. Out of 49. So you multiply the previous number times 10 over 49, and you end up with this relatively small number, and it says that, you know, there's only a small chance that you're going to get Delta Pat Badoogie in the first four cards. Right. And that would just be like the starting point. Now you would say, well, okay, if I have three cards and I'm going to draw one, what are my chances of making a Badoogie? Well, again, that's our last step of the previous problem. That's 10 cards, but now it's not out of 49 because you've seen the other card. So it's 10 out of 48 is your chances of making any Badoogie. If you're drawing one card to a three-card Badoogie. Yeah, no matter what those three cards are, there's 10 other cards out there that will give you a Badoogie. Now, of course, when you're playing the game, you know, if you need a spade and it can't be an ace, a two, or a three, so you've got the perfect draw. You've got the ace, two, three, three in suit. three different suits. Right. Um, you might catch the king and it'll be no good. If your opponent already has a pet Badoogie made, then it will frequently be lower than a king. So right. you might not have ten outs. Right. And, of course, that's the, the card sense part. That's the uh, reading your opponent part. You right. Know, trying to guess how many of the cards out there. I know if I catch a four, but I know if I catch a five, it's good, you know, 99.999% of the time. You know, if I catch a six, it's good 99% of the time. If I catch a seven, you know, it's still good a large majority of the time. But now as you start moving to higher cards, if I catch the eight of spades, the nine of spades, the ten of spades, will it be any good? Right. And that's where you have to guess what your opponent has. But when you're sitting at home doing the math, you just say, you know, what are my chances of beating these different hands that my opponent is holding? And you and, have to uh, do the math. Doing the math, since there's no primer, there's no book out there that says tend to play these cards, make sure that you're not calling if you're drawing uh, with less than 20. In other words, there's nobody else that's done this math for you, so somebody that can figure out the math, knows about cards, has a big advantage over a player that's just playing completely by instinct. Yeah, I mean, there's things that might not be obvious. I mean, in other low-ball games, you might think that, like, oh, if I'm drawing to a hand like 7-6-5, I'm a favorite over someone who's drawing two cards. Right. You know, even if they have a premium draw like ace-deuce. But with three draws to come, the ace-deuce is a significant favorite over the 7-6-5. So you would want to draw to a two-card ace-deuce badoogie instead of a three-card Badoogie that was headed by a 7-6. Yeah, because the problem with the 7-6-5 the is that, you know, the best you can make is a 7. Right. And it's a rough 7. A rough 7, that. right. Now, 7s are quite good hands, but uh, still, frequently you won't make the hand. In fact, that's the other thing you can do in the math, is you can say if you start with a three-card draw and you draw three times, what are the chances you'll ever make any Badoogie at all? And it turns out, quite interestingly, that the chances are about 50, pretty close to 50%. Wow. So it's kind of like, the thing. I, the reason I think the Doogie might be such a good game is because it's kind of like Hold'em in the sense that if you have a pair versus two overcards in Hold'em, it's about a coin flip. Huh. You know, if, you could, if you got all the money in you know, in the first round of betting, you're in a coin flip. And the same thing in the Doogie, if you have a one-card draw versus a pat hand, and you get and, and I mean the game is usually played limit, so you don't usually get it all in. Right. But uh, you know, if it were all in at that point, and any badoogie was good, even the king, even if you just caught the king for the worst badoogie you could make with your starting hand, if that was still going to win for you, then you're going to win, you know, just over half the time. Wow. 
Well, you know, this may be this may be setting a record here for the longest conversation on the radio of Badugi ever. Greg, <laughs> I, I don't know if and, and both of the people who are but still don't, listening don't let to us, us run out of time. No, don't no, 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 no. Out. I want to hear about some I other have a story. Stuff. I have to tell you. Well, then go ahead. Tell us the story. I'm eager to hear it. OK, because this story involves you. And I'm not sure if you can remember this story. So, <laughs> go ahead. I'm <laughs> eager to hear it now. You got me sucked in. OK, because now, you know, when you're talking about how you knew me back, you know, in the days, so to speak, before 2004, even going back well before that. Yes. And I think, was it 2001? Now my memory's going fuzzy. I think it was 2001 when I made the final table of the World Poker Finals main event. Yes. And you were sweating me. Okay. They had the table set up in the middle of the floor in the poker room. I remember this. They had, a, they had a rail pushed way back, like at least 10 or 15 feet away from the table. Yes. And people were ringing it around, just standing up around the, the rail and the sweating the game. Right. And and I play a huge pot where I'm all in. We're three-handed at this point. We're down to the final three players. And I play a big pot against the chip leader. I'm all in. I spike an ace on the river. Um, back then, you didn't have to turn your hand over. So we didn't know what he had ever. But there's a good chance that if I didn't catch that river card, I was going to lose. I might have had him beat anyways. You know, he might have had ace with the worst kicker. Right. Or something. We don't know for sure because you didn't have to turn your hand face up at that point in poker history. But uh, an ace comes on the river. I turn over my, like, ace jack or whatever it was. He mucks his hand. I scoop the pot. I become the chip leader. And my wife is standing on the rail sweating me, and she happens to be standing next to you, and you guys have been chatting and stuff um, off and on. And I look over to give her, like, the thumbs up that I'm pulling in this big pot. You know, I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm 15, 20 feet away from her. Right. And as I look over to give her the thumbs up, it's like she's her knees are, are shaking. She looks like she's about to pass out, you know. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, there's no way I can get there in time. I hope Ashley catches her. <laughs> and, uh, and I've told that story many times, you know. But I think this might be the first time I've uh, certainly the first time I've told it uh, on the radio. I remember standing next to her. I must confess that I did not even think that she was ready to pass out, and I'm glad she didn't. But I would have caught her, Greg. And. Uh, <laughs> That, well, so, if you'd actually started to fall, it would have been pretty obvious to you. But, you know, it's like, you know, your eyes were towards the table, her eyes were towards the table. But, I mean, I could just see her knees were just going back and forth, and she really looked like she was about to collapse. Well, because it was just like too much, you know, seeing me play this massive pot. How was she at the, at the main event in 2004? If she was ready to pass out from you winning the pot in 2001 when the stakes were not that high. What was she like uh, in 2004? Well, apparently she almost passed out there. <laughs> you know, if you watch the TV show, you'll see, like, the first thing, you know, I'm yelling. And then I go over and I, like, congratulate David. Right. And it wasn't until I had gone over and, you know, shook his hand and, and gave him a hug and told him that he played really well. And then I was like, wait, my wife's back there. So right. in that, like, 20 seconds or whatever it took, 30 seconds, um, you know, like my dad had told me later that... Uh, you know, the ESPN crew had been encouraging all of them. My my wife was there. My dad was there. My wife's sister was there. Right. That, you know, if Greg wins, you know, don't worry about this rail. You just go right under it, you know, and go up and hug him, whatever you want to do. So as soon as I'd won, my dad was ready to jump under the rail and, and run up to the table. But then Cheryl was, like, almost passed out <laughs> in the seat. So he, like, spent that 20 or 30 seconds kind of reviving her. And then when I came over to give her a, a, a hug, she was able to stand up by then. Right. Well, I, I remember we're going to go to a break, uh, if you don't mind being held over, and uh, we're just going to no, take no, no. a very brief break. But uh, if you can come back, that's terrific. I remember that in 2004, you were by far uh, the favorite if anybody was watching the event because you had had this run and you were just dominating the table and winning hand after hand. I remember that, this kind of sense of momentum, which you don't often see in a poker game. I remember the experience. People must have been thinking, Greg, it was almost seemed to me at least, from your perspective, I imagine it was different. It almost seemed inevitable after you had amassed the large chip stack that you were going to go on to win that event. But I want to finish that story after a break. We'll be back with Greg Raymer. We're going to take a commercial break and we'll be right back.
Great Moments in History. In 1803, President Jefferson convinces Congress of the importance of the Louisiana Purchase. No thing, Crocker, Crocker. He's gonna roll away for the color. Now, who can argue with that? Robert. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Robert. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions that could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-card stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-card stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, the cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing. You'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides, but we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized, and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. This is the House of Cards. You got a gamble to win, boys and girls. With Ashley Adams. Hogan! Is that the king? Welcome back. You're still joined by Greg Raymer. This is Ashley Adams, House of Cards. And Greg, you were in the middle of telling a story about the 2001 experience that you had where you won really your first uh, title with, a, I guess it was a World Poker Tour event, wasn't it, at Foxwoods? Well, it wasn't World Poker Tour. It was 2000. I think it was 2001. World was Poker 2000, Finals. 2001. It was the World Poker Finals. That's right. Which became a World Poker Tour event a, a couple of years later, one or two years later. Um, but and I didn't win that one. I actually only finished third. Oh, um, okay. But, but it was still by far. I mean, I won fifty thousand dollars, which, you know, you think about the money in poker today, and especially something like a, you know the World Poker Finals, where the first prize is well over a million dollars. <laughs> right. But back 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 then, instead of ten, it was a five thousand dollar buy-in, and we had something like seventy-nine players to start the tournament. You know, I think now they probably get closer to ten times that many people for twice the buy-in. Right. So it was a fifty thousand for third, and it was like a hundred and fifty thousand that went to the winner. It was your first major cash, right? Um, no, it depends what you consider a major. I had, uh, you know, cashed um, many times. Well, in fact, one of the preliminary events in the World Poker Finals in in ninety eight, I uh, finished. Well, I kind of finished first. There's officially, I finished second. We made a deal three handed, uh-huh. and I got and I got the most money. I see. And then we played it out. And uh, my opponent ended up winning the title. But I see. We'd already done a deal for all the cash. I see. So I won twenty two thousand dollars. He got like seventeen thousand, but he's the official winner of the event. Right. And well, uh, but you know, again, it depends. I mean, back then, it's like, you know, twenty two thousand dollars was huge. 
right. was a huge one in the poker world. And, you know, nowadays that would be considered, you know, an inconsequential event. Well, there are entry fees that are $50,000 that you've paid, or at least your sponsors yeah. have paid for the horse event. Um, let me ask you this, Greg. I mean, I, I followed your career from the periphery. I've never been anything close to the type of player that you are. When I'm wondering, but you are. You just you're a stud player, and the, the, that's not the big game. Even so, uh, with all due respect to my great stud game, I would not think that I would be on the same level as you or any of the top players. Even though you are primarily a hold'em and mixed game player, I wouldn't want to compete against you in stud. But I appreciate the compliment. What I'm wondering is, you were a patent lawyer. You worked for Pfizer. Um, yep. You played poker as a hobby. You started to win. When did you start to think, you know what, I might be able to do this as a career? And how did you decide, if you decided, to actually go in that direction? Or did this incredible victory just kind of thrust itself upon you and you said, hey, I can do this full time if I want now? How did it happen that you became a pro? Well, I had considered myself a pro for several years um, before winning the main event in 04. But I consider myself a part-time pro. Mm-hmm. So I was a full-time patent attorney, part-time professional poker player. And, and I had known for several years before 2004 that if I quit my job as an attorney, I could have made a living as a poker player. But, you know, I probably wasn't going to. I wasn't likely to make a lot more money as a poker player than I was getting paid as an attorney. Right. I mean, again, we got to go back to, uh, you know, you know, nine, ten years ago in the poker world. And back then, if someone played poker professionally and made like $50,000 a year, they were, you know, creme de la creme almost. Right. And that was a lot of money back then for someone who was just, you know, grinding out cash games in an occasional tournament. Um, but I was getting paid better than that by Pfizer to be a patent attorney. Right. So I might have made more money as a poker player, but it wasn't likely that I would make more money. And then, of course, I would also miss out on things like pensions and 401ks and health insurance. And, and sick days. I've got, a, I've got a wife and a daughter. Right. Um, so just financially, it would have been a foolish risk for me to quit that job and become a full-time poker player. Right. But once I won the main event, then PokerStars is offering me more money to represent them than Pfizer is paying me to be an attorney. So now the decision's real easy. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm giving up a pay raise right. by being an attorney. Right. And at least for the duration of my first contract with PokerStars, I was guaranteed to make more money. So your bottom line was already covered. You were already guaranteed enough money to pay you what you had made as a full-time attorney for Pfizer, and then any tournament or cash game victories over the course of the year was just gravy. Yeah, so in 2005, when I when I finished 25th in the main event, it paid 300000 Right. Yeah, even though PokerStars has paid the entry fee, I still get to keep the entire three hundred thousand. Right, not a so, not a bad deal. So it's you know, it, it's yeah, yeah. It's not like being staked. You know, I mean, if if you, if you and I make a deal and you're staking me into tournaments, then obviously you're going to be getting a big cut of the total win. Well, actually, that but, brings uh, up a story I have about you. It just mm-hmm. reminded me. I I remember in two thousand and four, before the main event, you did something that was in some circles, very controversial, although it's done all the time. It was controversial among some of the folks that you knew, which was to say, all right, I'm a pro. You can buy into the Greg Raymer poker profession with a share, um, not on an exactly equal basis. I mean, I'm not going to sell 5% of me for 5% of the entry fee because that doesn't pay me for any of my time. But you said, you can buy a piece of my action. And I remember... There was some bundling that went on. A few people got together and bought a share of Greg Raymer, and then there were some naysayers who said, oh, this is a ripoff. People are just going to throw money. In. Why would anybody do that if they want to keep? If they are really a good player? Why wouldn't they want to keep 100% of their own action? And there was some debate. And I remember thinking, what a great idea. I wonder if I could buy a share. And I sent an email. I think it was on Poker, where the idea was floated to most of the people that found out about it. And I sent an email. I said, I'd like to buy a share for $100. Unfortunately, the share prices were, I think, 500 was the smallest action that I could buy. And I didn't yep, have... shares were $500 each. Right. And unfortunately, I didn't 
want to spend that much money to buy a piece of Greg Raymer. I only wanted to spend a hundred, but would that I had spent the five hundred because then you went on to win the main event, and uh, that would have been a beautiful return for my five hundred dollar investment. Do you find that uh, you still have contact with some of those early investors in the Greg Raymer fund, or how did that end up turning out for you? Well, some of those people were absolute strangers. I mean, this started in 2002. Oh, I didn't um, realize that. Went that back that far. It went back that far. I had gone to the World Series in 02 and, and actually had a, a horrible series. You know, I played, uh, I forget, four or five preliminary events and, and didn't cash in any of them. And I had played some cash games and had just gotten beat up um, in the cash games. So I come back from the World Series trip and, and my bankroll is, you know, is like, you know, I've lost over half my bankroll. And at that time, we still had the really good mix game at Foxwoods that was either 75-150 or 1-2 or 150-300. Right. And my bankroll really wasn't going to support my play in that game. And I didn't want to quit that game because the next step down was 20-40 limit hold'em, and I really don't like limit hold'em. Right. So it was going to take me quite a while uh, to grind my way back up playing 20-40 limit hold'em to where my bankroll was healthy enough to play that, that bigger mix game. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, I mean, my edge on a percentage basis is higher in that mix game than it is in the 2040 hold'em. Right. I mean, if I was going to play the 2040 hold'em, I'm going to make probably $25 an hour. And if I played that mix game at 75, 150, I was going to average like, you know, over $100 an hour. Right. So as a percentage basis, it was higher and on an absolute basis. So I floated the idea on RGP and 2 plus 2. Do people want to buy shares of me? You know, and here's the deal. I'm going to use the money in this manner. I'm going to play like this mixed game. I'm going to play some of the big tournaments like the World Poker Finals and the New England Poker Classic, uh, the World Series of Poker. And, you know, you contribute. If we get enough people to do it so the bankroll's big enough to do all these things, then the deal will be that, uh, you know, if we lose, we all lose equally. Right. And I was putting up, you know, again, a significant portion, like 35 40% of the total bankroll was going to be my own money. Right. So if we had all lost, you know, if it had been, you know, whatever, if it had been a 10% loss in the bankroll, then I would have lost 10% of my money that I was putting in. Right. And if we won, then the deal would be that I get the first 35% of the profit and the remaining profit, excuse me, the remaining profit would have been split equally amongst the shareholders, right. including myself. So uh, effectively, on the losing side, I was losing about 35% because I put up 35% of the money. On the winning side, I was getting um, closer to 60% of the profit. Right. But this was a long-term deal. The, the original deal was for six months. And then at that time, you can cash out, or I said to everyone, if you want to continue, you can just leave your money in. And we did that for six-month periods four times until I won the main event. So the share prices went from 500. It actually dipped the first period down to 490. And I felt bad because I'd actually won quite a bit of money online at that time. Right. But the original deal didn't include online play because a lot of the backers didn't want it to include online play. I see. And uh, you know, they felt like the variance was higher online, and they didn't want that. And then I was like, look at guys, you know, I feel really bad because all of us as a group here have lost $10 a share, but I've actually made a lot of money in the last six months playing, playing on poker stars. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to include online poker in the next deal. And we did. And then the next deal, the share price went to about 550 And then the third time, it went up to like 610 and then we won the main event, and the fourth time, and the share price went to thirty-six thousand. Wow! <laughs> well, so even if you'd gotten in for a hundred, if you'd grouped up with some other people, I know, I know, <laughs> you would have you would have turned your hundred into like seventy-two hundred. Right. Um, we're going to hold on one second. I think we're going to take a commercial break, and we'd like to come back. And I want to ask you, Greg, when we come back from break, what it's like on a day-to-day basis being a full-time pro, and if you ever think, geez, maybe I'll get back into having another kind of a job um, instead of just playing poker so and teaching poker. So hold on. We're going to take another quick break. Then we'll be back, if you don't mind, sticking around, Greg, for oh, another no seven or eight minutes. Okay, great.
Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions that could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they are particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of Mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides, but we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized, and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. This is House of Cards Radio with Ashley Adams. Card player, gambler, scoundrel, you'd like it. Welcome back. This is Ashley Adams, and I am still joined, fortunately, by Greg Raymer, world champion. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Greg, before I get to the other things on my list, because it just occurred to me, you did something that some considered to be the most remarkable feat in tournament poker. You not only won the $5 million prize in 2004, but then you came back the next year against over 5,000 competitors and finished 25th. I'm wondering what you thought during that tournament in the early stages about the possibility of repeating, if not winning again, at least finishing high up in the money. Did you think it was a real possibility? Were you just focusing on the hands? Were you thinking, my God, I might make poker history uh, and, and win two huge events in a row? What were you thinking the second year? Well, I was trying to avoid thinking about the history and, and all that kind of stuff, and and it wasn't it wasn't possible to completely ignore it because that's the main question I was getting asked by all the various reporters and bloggers <laughs> and stuff. Right. You know, they'd catch me on the breaks and at the end of the days after the first couple of days. I mean, at the end of my day one, I was not chip leader, but I was you know up there in the top, you know whatever five percent of all the chip stacks. And at the end of my day two, I was one of the like top 10 chip leaders and then by the end of day three i was the chip leader right so it was impossible to avoid those questions but you know i i have often been asked by reporters you know in 2004 when did you think you know that you were going to do it yes and and i was like well when i saw david's hand on the final hand belt you know, <laughs> when he, he turned over his cards on the river and i realized i beat his hand that's when i knew i was going to win um because up till then i mean again i'm a mathematical guy so even when I get heads up with David and the chip counts about 18 million to 8 million, you know, then I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I've got 18, 26 of the entire, of, of the entire chips in play. Um, you know, my chances of winning are, uh, you know, in theory, you know, since I have like, uh, what would that be? That would be like, uh, you know, about 70% of the chips. But I thought, you know, I think I, I've got a lot more experience than this guy, so it's probably my chances are a little better than 70%. It's maybe 75 80% likely that I'm going to win. But that's really how I was thinking. That actually it. went through your head? You're not just – I can't imagine. I'm not even sure if I wasted any time on it. Okay, I see. But, but, but thinking about it now, I mean, if you had asked me at the end of, you know, day one, day two, day three in 2004, you know, 
are you going to win this? Right. I wouldn't have said hell. I wouldn't have said anything like, oh hell yeah, you know, I'm I'm playing great, you know, blah blah blah. I'm going to win. I would have said to you like, well, at this point in time, I have three percent of the chips, and I think I'm a little better than average of the players remaining in the field. So I've probably got like a four percent chance of winning. Yes. And that's the answer you would have gotten from me, as boring as it is to most reporters. Right. Um, and that's the way I tend to think of things. So, you know, you could put me heads up against a total donkey and give me 90% of the chips, and I'm not going to tell you this is a lock. Right. I'm going to tell you it's, you know, I'm 95 or whatever percent likely to win. Right. Because you're a mathematical guy, and that's how you think. You don't think, think in hyperbole. I've played matches against players that are really bad, and, and they've beaten me on occasion. So, uh, you know, I know it can happen no matter what the chip count is and no matter what the skill edge is. Right. Well, let me let me just spend the, the next seven, eight, nine minutes that we have here uh, asking you some more lifestyle questions that have often intrigued me. Uh, okay. You went from being a part-time pro to a full-time pro. And uh, I know that you did it for financial reasons and you did it because you figured, well, why would I want to stick with my day job when I can do this wonderfully uh, exciting thing full-time? I'm wondering how you found it. I mean, because I think of life on the road and traveling and doing poker seminars and playing in tournaments all over the world as something that might be glamorous at first, but then would be, especially when you have a young child, might be kind of a grind, um, but then maybe you're home a lot of the time. So what's it been like to be a full-time professional? Well, one thing I'll say is that uh, no matter what job you are thinking of, no matter what it is, people who think you know certain jobs are glamorous, yes. it never is. It doesn't matter what the job is. I mean, one advantage of, you know, kind of being a celebrity, being on TV all the time, I've had opportunities to meet other celebrities, you know, so movie actors, TV actors, full-time professional athletes in major sports. Yes. And, you know, those are jobs that people think are very, very glamorous, and they just really aren't. <laughs> um, you know, there are aspects of these jobs that are glamorous, you know, but the day-to-day -day job itself really is a job you right. know and it's often hard work and even if it's a job you enjoy you know so you're talking to a guy who's a professional baseball player and he might love the game but it's still a grind because he knows he has to get up every day even if he doesn't feel like it today and he's got to work out and, and do this and do that and take batting practice and 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 do the stretching and blah 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 and and he really can't afford to skip even a day here and there because if he does, he's not going to be as good as he thinks he should be right? at, at, at his game. So uh, the, the glamour, you know, and then, of course, it is all these other things like traveling, being away from your family. There's, there's lots of negatives about all of these careers, no matter what it is. So they may be more glamorous than working on an assembly line, right? but they're not just nonstop glamour end to end. There's lots of parts of the job that are, you know, inconvenient, annoying, you know, whatever. I mean, I just finished a, a three-week, three-country trip. So I started off flying from Raleigh to Korea. Oh, so, uh, so that's, I hope you fly first class. Do you fly first class or business class at least? Business class. Okay, well, that's all right. So I, I flew to Korea, played the Asia-Pacific Poker Tour, flew to London, played the European Poker Tour, flew to Auckland, New Zealand to play another Asia-Pacific Poker Tour event, and then flew home to Raleigh. So it was a three-week trip, three different countries, four if you count the U.S., um, you know, about 80 hours of flying time in oh. three weeks. And, and, and that's, you know, very annoying. It's very much a grind, you know, just sitting on the plane. I mean, flying from London to Auckland is like 27 hours, <laughs> oh, two hour, you know, which includes a two-hour stop in Hong Kong while they, you know, refuel the plane and stuff. Man, I, I, I would not like that. I mean, I like traveling intellectually i like the idea of traveling i hate the physical travel being crammed into a seat although if you're traveling business class just for every everybody so they know it's much different from traveling coach but still oh, yeah. 22 it's, hours in a it's in much a much better but it's still not anything enjoyable to be in the plane well do you ever think about going back or changing and being a part-time pro i don't maybe you can't even talk about that since you're being sponsored and everything but do you ever think about well, I can because the answer is they just I have no interest in being an attorney again, and there's, I mean, you know I I never was thrilled being an attorney. It was it was fine. It was, it was it was a good way to make a living. You know the pay was pretty good, and it's not a it's not a horrible job. It's not like it's a job that you absolutely hate. 
every right. minute of the day. Um, and a lot of people I know are less fortunate, and they're stuck in jobs that they, you know, and they're doing the right thing. They're taking care of themselves and their family, but they're stuck in a job that they hate. Well, you know, and they're there eight hours a day hating every second of it. Well, I got I to gotta opine here. I've got to say a couple of things, Greg. You are so cogent and clear and analytical listening to you that unlike, you know, there are a lot of poker players that talk a good game, but you have a rational way of speaking about your experiences that if it's not unique, at least it's very unusual to the poker players that I've interviewed. And I don't know if that comes from your legal background or that's just the way you are, that I'm wondering why it is you don't, I mean, I realize you do poker seminars, but writer, professor, teacher of skills other than just poker, I think that would be a natural for you. Uh, something... I've, always, I've always been a teacher. I mean, my, one of my nicknames as an undergraduate at the University of Missouri was Shell. And <laughs> Shell? If you, remember, if you remember the old Shell ads where they had the Shell, Shell answer, answer Man? Yes. Yes, so I remember. I was the guy that everyone came to in my fraternity for help with their homework. Uh-huh. They, they would sometimes be literally standing in line outside my door. <laughs> well, have you thought about academia? You know what? Actually, I, you know, I went to graduate school, and I have a master's degree in biochemistry. And so I you know, became pretty familiar with how it works in academia, and, and it's really a grind. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> most, okay. most academics don't spend most of their time teaching. They spend most of their time on other things. That's true. So uh, if you actually wanted to teach, you'd be better off doing it in something you know, younger than college, you know, right. high, high school. school, middle school, elementary school. Or if you want to teach adults, you don't want to deal with the hassles that, that come with children of various ages, then you probably need to do something like community college. Right. You know, where your job is 100% teaching. You're not supposed to, like, get grants. Right, right. although, my God, you would be the coolest high school teacher ever invented. Can you imagine? I, I, I doubt that, really. Oh, I don't mean I, that I, your style I, would be cool, but the kids, what they would be thinking, of course, they'd be all distracted, and they just want you to talk about poker. Uh, but can you imagine Greg Raymer as your high school teacher? The kids would just be flocking to go in. And then, of course, you'd get into the instructional part and actually uh, forcing well, them I, to do some I'd work. the actual math instead of the poker. And That's right. So well, when's we, your book coming out? I'm waiting for the <laughs> Greg Raymer well, book on poker that you've I, I've talked to you about for years, and I thought it would have been out by now. I'm I'm not much more closer to being done now than <laughs> the day after I won the main event. Oh so, well, uh, it's, I'm just very lazy about that. I mean, the good news is I've been less lazy about some other things. So, another big teaching opportunity for me is a company that I'm working with. We just started up a site called ProPlayLive.com. And it's one of the tra- you know, video training sites. Oh, I don't um, know about so, that. I don't, what is a video training We haven't done site? our big marketing launch. We haven't done so. Uh, you know, the name really isn't out there in the poker world yet. Well, it will but, be now, now that it's come on House of Cards, ProPlayLive.com. And, and so the thing that's really going to set us apart from the other video training sites is that if you're someone who you know likes to watch poker on TV and all that, and you're not someone who's already a huge Internet player, then you're going to actually know our instructors as opposed to the oh. other sites where if you're not someone who's pretty big into the online poker world, then I mean, I'm not saying the instructors on the other sites aren't great instructors, but these are guys that even I don't know who they are because their success and their fame has come entirely from winning online cash games or online tournaments. I see. And they're not necessarily guys that have any fame or notoriety in the live poker world. Whereas our instructors, besides myself, we've got people like Bill Chen, who won two bracelets in our class. Yes, I know, you know Bill Chen. Tom, Tom McAvoy, who is the 19, was he the 82 world champion? 82, 83? He's either 1982 or 83. I'm sorry, Tom, I've forgotten. <laughs> but, you know, former, former you know, world, world champ, poker yep. main event. Yep. Um, you know, we've got uh, Amy Duke, Eric Seidel, um, you know, so these are going to be instructors who you're going to know who they are, and you're going to understand, you know, immediately, you know, how competent they are, you know, when it comes to knowing poker. Well, I can't wait for it because uh, I, I tell you, I think that your talent, not just as a great poker player, but you have a talent in teaching, and I would love to be able to have you come back on when you have ProPlayLive.com completely up and running and ready to launch. 
and uh, have you talk well, it's, about it's, it? It's going. It's ready. It's launched. Oh, it's it's we, launched now. We, it's, the site is, is live, and it works. Everything's fine. We haven't done our big marketing launch. We're about to have a big marketing campaign with the ESPN Poker Club. I see. And well, so that's going to be a big marketing launch. And then we're also doing a thing with the World Tavern Poker, which is the country's biggest uh, you know, bar poker. It's an league. amateur league? Yeah, it's where you can go to a bar and you can, you can play poker live against other people, and it's free. There's no money to be spent. And there's some small prizes for the winners. Is it on the East Coast yet, or is it pretty much Midwest and South and somewhere I mean, else? It's actually headquartered here in Raleigh, and so this is one of our big venues. It's here in, in North Carolina. We also have lots of bars up in, like, Maryland and the D.C. area and Pennsylvania. We actually got a lot of people in Alaska, too. It's tavernpoker.com. What's it called? WorldTavernPoker.com. We'll put the link on our site on HouseOfCardsRadio.com, WorldTavernPoker.com, and then ProPlayLive.com. Greg, I would love to talk to you some more. Maybe after your big PR for ProPlayLive.com, you can come back on and talk to us more about who you have and what's available on the site. You're a wonderful interview. I just miss seeing you because I don't see you at Foxwoods, um, which is just my loss. Are you coming up for the World Poker Finals? I'm not. I mean, to be honest, the problem is that I'm just too busy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, representing poker stars, they now have the European Poker Tour, the Latin American mm. Poker Tour, and the Asia Pacific Poker Tour. So it's important to them that, that myself and, and other members of Team Poker Stars Pro, you know, come to those events, come to those events, support those events. I understand. And my, contra- my contract requires me to attend, you know, a significant number of these uh, tournaments, plus our, our Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure every January. Um, so once you, you put in like a dozen of these international events, uh, a month and a half or more at the World Series in the summer, you know, a couple other things, NBC Heads Up, Poker After Dark, things like that that, that will come into my schedule. I it's understand. Like, I, just, I just don't have time for the, you know, I'm already spending six, seven months a year away from my family, so I just don't come to World Poker Tour events anymore. I understand, and when everything boils down, it is still a job, and I respect you for that, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks again. You have an open invitation. Anytime that you or your publicist want to come on and talk about what you're doing, Greg, you'd be Thank a welcome you. guest. Okay. Take care. That ends it for House of Cards. We'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing. You'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides. But we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org 
and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.